Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the show. We are continuing through the book of Revelation and we jumped into chapters eight and nine last time and we're going to continue to look at that and look at what's happening with the trumpets. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rob, what do we want to, how do we want to venture on this week? What apocalyptic end of the world imagery are we going to learn about? Well, we want to look a little bit deeper into the issue of the seven trumpets in Revelation chapters eight and nine that we looked at last week. Maybe let's begin by reviewing a little bit what we discussed last week and kind of bring the conversation a little bit further if we can. So let me start by Vinny, by asking you, what are some of the things that you recall from last week? I know it's been a couple of weeks in real time since we actually met, um, but yeah. that you recall in terms of the discussion regarding the seven trumpets. Actually, should we note this too? We haven't met in a couple of weeks. Uh, and today is Reformation Day, right? So uh, we're recording this on October 31st. Oh, so yeah, I, I always, All Saints Day tomorrow. It is right. So yeah. as a good Presbyterian, shouldn't you be appreciating this? Or uh, is it just me going back to my Lutheran roots? But you're part uh, yeah, of the no, no comment. You're a whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Reformed so, Baptist in me still that's, gets excited. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. We noted that the seven trumpets; these are going to be paralleling the seven seals. Yes. Um, that that we had previously seen in chapters six and seven. Then we know that John he overlaps the beginning of the seven trumpets and the end of the seven seals. Yeah, uh, and then you argued that if the seals are not God's wrath, then maybe the trumpets aren't either. Yeah. So, what what are some of the reasons why you think this? Because this is this okay. is some of what you're arguing in your forthcoming commentary on Revelation, right? That, that's right. All right. Yeah. So I would begin with the fact of what you just mentioned that there's the overlapping of the seals and trumpets. So if you recall from last week, chapter eight, verse one is the seventh seal, but chapter eight, verse five is the end of the seventh seal with the theophanic manifestation. Chapter 8, verse 2 is the beginning of the seven trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 6 is the announcement of the seven trumpets, or I guess I'll say chapter 8, verse 2 is the introduction to the seven trumpets, and chapter 8, verse 6 then is the announcement that the trumpets are about to sound. So there's an overlapping, the first thing. The second thing is obviously there's a parallel between the seals and the trumpets and the way that they're structured. Not only do they overlap one another, where John, the linking of them suggests that we should look at them in light of one another, but the first four seals clearly stand out from the last three seals. They each have a rider on a horse and a voice says come and one of the four living creatures speaks and uh, things of that nature. And then the various colored horse appears. And then the first four trumpets are clearly marked out from the last three trumpets, specifically in, in the fact that chapter eight, verse 13 says, whoa, whoa, whoa to those who are about, and well, now we'll discuss what, whether it should be translated as whoa, whoa, whoa or not, but whoa, whoa, whoa uh, to those who dwell on the earth because of the last three trumpets that are about to sound. So the last three trumpets are identified as the three woes. Uh, so there's another uh, indication that the f- last three trumpets are distinct from the first four trumpets. And then we have the fact that the first four seals affect humanity. You could say more than humanity because there's famine, but ultimately humanity. Uh, there's false teaching and false uh, deception and false propaganda, followed by war, followed by famine, and followed by pestilence and death. This is affecting humanity. And then the first four trumpets affect the totality of creation. The first trumpet affects the land that we'll, we're going to look at this a little bit more as we go, but the second trumpet affects the sea. The third trumpet affects the fresh waters, the rivers and springs, and the fourth trumpet affects the sun, the moon, and the stars. And four being the number for creation or for totality and completion and fullness. So it seems to indicate that you have the first four seals affecting all of humanity and the first four trumpets affecting all of creation. And that's another literary reason why I think they, they should be aligned uh, together. It, well, and then because of this, you argued that uh, since seals one through four and trumpets one through four are not the devastation that comes from God's wrath, it's uh, instead it's the devastation that comes from hum- humanity and power, basically. Uh, so remind us why you thought that this was important and and how you even came to this conclusion, which isn't necessarily the predominant perspective. Yeah, it's, it's not even the consensus at all, even in the scholarly okay. world, although I'm not alone, we'll discuss that as, as we go. But uh, yeah, the, the, the first thing is this, we go back to the seven seals and scholars are well on this one. So there's almost wide consen- consensus on this. That is that the seals parallel what we call the Olivet Discourse or Jesus' hmm. Sermon on the End Times, which, and again, defining how you define end times, found in Matthew 24 or found in Mark chapter 13. And Luke kind of divides it up in Luke 17 and Luke mm-hmm. 21. Uh, and what you see then is that the seals 
the first four seals describe almost an identical order and maybe even the first five seals because uh, the fifth seal is the souls crying out how long oh lord right the people of god like how long is this going to go on the, the first five seals parallel the jesus's sermon to this disciples the disciples like hey jesus when is the temple going to be destroyed you know when are these things going to happen he's like hey guess what there'll be false prophets and false christ that's the first seal there's going to be wars and rumors of wars there's the second seal there's gonna be famines that's the third seal and, and earthquakes and pestilence in various places that's the fourth seal and then you'll be persecuted on account of my name and like oh that's the fifth seal so it seems at least the first four seals if not the fifth two parallel are identical to jesus's sermon and jesus's sermon was not about hey these are going to be the signs of the end times but these are going to be the things that happen between now and the destruction of Jerusalem. And what he's saying is, these are normal things. These are things that just happen every day. There's, there's just going to be false prophets and false Christ going around. There's going to be wars that he's not a prophet when he says, guess what? I prophesy that there shall be wars. Hey, wow, look at that. It came, it happened. Mm -hmm. These are just things that they're normal occurrences of events. So Jesus is one of the disciples. Hey, look, don't be deceived. Things are going to go on as normal for a while with earthquakes and famines and pestilence and wars and things like that. And then you're going to get persecuted. You're going to, hey, when's this going to happen? But then he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get law, you know, get out of town. Right. So if that's the case, then the first four seals cannot be seen as like an indication as to when the world's going to end or signs of the soon to be return of Jesus Christ. They're just normal course of events that happen when human beings are in power. If that's the case, then the first four trumpets, which parallel the seals that we just discussed, and they're describing the the effects that happen on creation, then it seems to stand that, oh, that the destruction of creation in the first four trumpets is also what happens when human beings are in power. And that these are the normal course of events in history that God's allowing to continue because, as we'll discuss in our next episode, the nations have not been redeemed yet. And that's, that's going to be the key. That there's that narrative. When's God going to redeem the nations? This is interesting, though, just as a side note, in Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, this is clearly speaking about the destruction of the temple. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that what we're in Jerusalem, about, maybe you could say Jerusalem. In also, Jerusalem, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and especially, I mean, Mark 13 is unequivocally talking about the, the temple. Uh, yes. Matthew 24 adds like the second question that seems to talk about the end. Oh, it seems uh, about the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it, it, but... What you're this, this is interesting because what you're not appealing to that in Revelation. You're saying it's following the same structure, but it's not necessarily talking about that event, right? If I'm understanding you correctly. Oh, correct, correct. It's it's not so the first four seals are not saying these things are going to happen until the temple's destroyed. It's like, no, these are just the normal course of events until the end happens and the, the people of God cry out, Well, how long? I'm like, well, not everybody's been redeemed yet. So you have to understand the seals in light of Revelation's narrative. But the parallel with Jesus' sermons lets you understand that, oh, what John's using these for in Revelation's narrative is just to express life's going to go on for a while and it's going to be hard for people, the people of God. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I guess the other thing I would add to that also, though, Vinny, is, you know, you asked, you know, why do I think uh, that this is so important that the devastation comes from human power and that the trumpets, which are customarily believed even amongst the scholarly world, as something that God does to bring mm -hmm. wrath upon the world so that they repent. And my response to that is, well, then you have to explain, as we discussed last time, chapter 11, verse 18, where it says in Revelation, at the end of the seventh trumpet, it says, God's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Mm -hmm. If God's the destroyer of the earth, that verse doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. That verse now makes a lot more sense when you go, wait a minute, let's change our paradigm to realizing that this is what the nations are doing and God's allowing it to occur. And that's why God's going to bring the destruction upon those who destroy the earth. Because that, that statement was so random, as we mentioned last time, uh, it didn't make any sense. Now, finally then, why is this so important? Well, I'd say a couple of things. One, I think it's a faithful reading of the text, right? This is always the point. We want to know what the text says and make sure that we're giving a faithful reading of the text. But secondly, it reminds us of what I think the whole biblical story is about, certainly the New Testament, and especially from the book of Acts all the way through the book of Revelation, that is, the mission of God's people is to proclaim the kingdom of God and to continue in expanding the work of the kingdom that Jesus has begun, and that doing so will be difficult. Hence, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. And therefore, it's necessary for us to endure for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the nations. That's why this is tied up to the prayers of the saints also.
Why do you emphasize that? You've said that for the sake of the nations. You've said that a few times. Why is that? Why do you see that specifically as being important? Because I think this is the focal point of the mission and the New Testament message of what God's people are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be taking up our cross and laying down our lives for the nations. This is the essence of discipleship. So the narrative, remember, the narrative of the book of Revelation is focused on the scroll at this point. And the scroll is likely the will of God. And we know this ultimately because we've kind of read ahead. We we know it's going to happen as we proceed in chapters 10 and 11. But uh, the scroll itself has seven seals. And all those things indicate that this is some like divine plan, some divine will. And what we learn as we proceed through the story is that God brings his redemption through us. And it's what I'm going to argue as we get to our next episode or two episodes from now on 10 and 11. What I'm going to argue is that the solution or the means by which God brings redemption is not by allowing the nations to bring havoc and devastation upon the earth and wars and all that calamity, because that doesn't bring repentance. That's what chapter 9, 21 and 22 are doing, or 20 and 21, whatever it is. But instead, he brings redemption by the people of God faithfully laying down their lives for the sake of the nations. It also then reminds us then, you know, we've talked about this also, Vinny, that this popular end times understanding is like, Oh, the nations of the world wage war against Russia and Israel. And, you know, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. It dispels Mm -hmm. that. It it makes us distinct from the nations. So the nations bring violence against God's people, but they're not our enemies. They are the enemies that we're to love and die for and the people to whom we are to give our witness to. Your understanding of this section in in chapters eight and nine, we've talked about how it's it's new and it's a bit radical. It's departing from uh, the, the consensus view. Like, how how can how convinced are you of this, and why do you think that you just might be pe- pegging something that's so different? Well, first off, the connection between the seals and the trumpets really helps solidify this. So, so I think I'm very convinced of this. I've worked on this now explicitly this thesis for um, eleven, almost twelve full months now, developing and expanding it and figuring out does this really work? And I mean intense amount of hours. So it's not like mm-hmm. I've just been studying this often. It's like, no, I've been working intensely on, on this particular thing. The parallel with the seals certainly solidifies the case. Secondly, the commonly held view of the seven trumpets, as we discussed plenty of times now, is problematic and it mm-hmm. needs to be rejected. It makes God an evil uh, God of wrath and vengeance. I want you to repent and I love you, but I'm going to strike you dead. And, and, and I don't think that makes any sense. The thing I would I would point out is that consensus opinion for for generations now has been influenced by popular dispensationalism and it's simply not what the text is saying and ultimately it makes let me kind of just reiterate a point i want to make and that is it makes god no different from the rules of the world my understanding of the text that i've developed and that we're discussing now has been influenced by other scholars including richard balcom and david barr i mean most notable names in revelation scholarship are there like they're saying things that i go hey and it caused me to kind of rethink things. And so David Barr, and I said this, we quoted this before, but let me let me uh, reiterate the quote. And it says, the first moral issue in the story raises for me is how can a story that glorifies war and violence be considered moral? He says, the second moral issue I face concerns the use of overwhelming force or power to coerce obedience. If God triumphs over evil only because God has more power than evil, then power, not love or freedom or goodness or truth, is the ultimate value of the universe. And this leads to a third moral dilemma, Bar notes. He says, let's assume for a moment that there is a force in the universe capable of exerting or exacting universal obedience and that the result of such coercion will be universal peace and justice, then why delay? Mm. And then Bar summarizes this. In short, if Revelation is read as a story about some future event, when God and or Jesus will dramatically intervene in human affairs and coerce obedience, it raises complex moral issues. These moral issues are never faced by the popular readings of the book of Revelation. I would note, by the way, Barr doesn't solve the, the problem. He simply, he raises the problem. Barr would be more what you and I would call like left-leaning, right? In other words, okay. he's not concerned about solving this dilemma, that there's problems in the Bible and he's and that, that's just the way it is. It's a humanist text. He's a brilliant scholar and a, and a very good, and I think he's a good Christian man too, so don't misunderstand me. But I think I'm wondering if, if he gets a hold of what I've presented and I said, hey, I took what you did, but what, what if we read it this way? It may actually make sense of the text. Two other reasons. That is, it radically undermines the revelation of God himself as a God of love. And that the fact that the nature of God's kingdom or Jesus's kingdom was established through sacrificial death. In other words, it's not only would God be a God of wrath, but the fact is that we know from Jesus that his kingdom is 
brought about and advanced by the people of God sacrificially dying. Uh, and then fourth, uh, as I mentioned before, it, it gets rid of the practical issues of the popular readings of good guys versus bad guys, especially rejoicing in war. And, and as we were recording this in real time, I have a webinar this afternoon where I'm going to talk about the war in Gaza and call out Christian leaders who are giving sermons in their churches saying, this war on Gaza is a sign of the end times, let's rejoice. And their churches are actually literally clapping their hands and applauding that, that Hamas has killed 1,400 people in Israel and that Israel's now going to respond with a, a, a force tenfold worse than what happened mm -hmm. to the to the time that you and I are recording this. Now, there are now 8,000 people in yeah. Gaza and 3,000 children that have died. And we're rejoicing over this? I, I think this is this is a warped reading of Scripture. I know growing up, and you and I have talked about this offline, growing up in a dispensational mindset, the view, and this relates over to, to our political views and, and how we view the world, literally the world. But the idea is that God is just going to destroy uh, this world. He's going to blow it up and make it new. So you know what? All this stuff about global warming, about environment issues, climate change, that's just all a hoax. And it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter what we do to the world. God's just going to make the whole thing new again. So, you know, forget it. If we're rereading this passage, not in the sense of God destroying everything and, and everything being messed up, but this is going to have different implications for how we view things like ecology and things, how, how we view just taking care of the world, right? Yeah. In fact, so we're going to have a discussion on this even more depth uh, next week, but I wrote a blog on this issue uh, a couple of months back, and we can put a link to that in the show notes saying global warming is legitimate and the book of Revelation supports it, right? It supports that, doesn't support global warming, supports the fact that this is what's going to happen, that when we are in power, we do things to the creation that instead of creation care, like we're called to, it's creation devastation. So the Secretary of, of, of the Interior during the, uh, during the Reagan administration, I believe it was his name was James Watt, actually said that, and he's the Secretary of the Interior, meaning it's his job to care for the national parks and the yeah. forests and everything else. He actually said, go ahead and destroy the forest and everything else. After all, it's going to burn up at the end of time anyways. Um, yeah. So too many Christians, I think, are pulled to the secular perspective. Uh, and it's actually a secular perspective. Mm -hmm. That makes this secular, secular, sacred divide. In other words, there's the sacred, which is like the spiritual things in heaven, our personal beliefs and faith. And then there's the secular, that's the physical world and science and observable facts and things of that nature. You know, the sacred is you believe things by faith, but the, the secular, you, we know things by as fact from science. That's a secular ideology mm -hmm. of the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And we see this even in the question like, you know, who is Israel? And, and I don't want to get into that debate now, but, but some will actually come out and say, oh, well, there's the spiritual Israel, that's Christians. And then there's the Jewish people, then they're the physical Israel. That's a secular ideological understanding of things that is then imposed on how we read the text. And, uh, the, but the idea that God's going to destroy this world and create another one, after all, 2 Peter chapter 3 says that the earth will be destroyed by fire. Fire is purifying. It's not destroying mm -hmm. it. It's cleansing it. It's purifying it. We know that God's going to restore his creation. And the best way to defend that, in other words, we have these two competing ideas. God's going to destroy the creation and, and, bring, and create another one. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's a, it's a new one distinct from the last one that he destroyed by fire. Or is God going to create a new one from the old one, mm. perfecting and glorifying it? And I think the best illustration or example that we have that it's the latter is the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. God didn't destroy his human body and then give him another one. Mm -hmm. The body of Jesus that died is the body that rose. In fact, it even retained the scars. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the New Testament teaches emphatically, 1 Corinthians 15, that it was sown this way and it will be raised this way. You know, the whole idea of 1 Corinthians 15 is the body that dies is the body that rises. And so that also is the same way with the creation. The world that exists now will be purified and restored back to its Edenic glory. I think glorified beyond what it was in Eden, um, but made better. And I think Romans chapter eight even says that. Let me go ahead and read if you, if you don't mind. Uh, Romans mm -hmm. eight verses 19 through 21. Uh, it says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is waiting for it to be liberated from its bondage to decay. So I think that's kind of the, the idea. The, the secular sacred distinction 
which is very prevalent in end times eschatology. We're going to get raptured out of here while God destroys the earth. We're going to go to heaven or even, even evangelical theology, kind of generically speaking, that says the gospel is about you being saved and going to heaven when you die. That's the secular mm. sacred divide. It's an unbiblical concept. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Now, you mentioned Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, I would argue, and affirming what you had said, and that is that God placed us on the earth to rule and subdue. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. Uh, and subdue most likely means to like create plants, to create agriculture, to, to harvest the earth and, and make it bountiful so that it can provide for everything. But there's an interesting statement in Genesis chapter one, the description of, of Adam and Eve or of male and female. It goes on in verse 30 to say, and to every beast of the earth. So this is the description of like God forming Adam and Eve. I made them in my image. I created them male and female and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And then in verse 30, it says this, and to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And you're like, why is that added? I mean, that, that has nothing to do with the formation of humanity. I mean, humanity is to, to rule over the earth and subdue it. But then there's this note, oh, by the way, don't forget, I gave the green plants for the animals also. Mm -hmm. And that's the answer, that in the formation of humanity to subdue the earth, we're reminded in the creation account itself, of chapter one, not even chapter two, of chapter one that, oh, when we cultivate the plants, remember the animals get to eat them too. We can't mm. just devastate the creation and harvest it all. And, and how many species are dying like every single day on this earth? We're not doing a very good job of, of creation care. So one last thing to add here. And again, we know that one last thing doesn't mean one last thing, but we'll say one last thing for now. And that is the real tragedy is that this is driven, driven by money. Right. The devastation of you know, rhinos and elephants is driven by money for the ivory. The devastation of, of fishing, certain fish that are near extinction is driven by money. There's laws in place to make sure that you don't overfish these things, but people don't care about that. The harvesting of, of, of uh, oil and all that stuff. And I get that we need to, but a lot of it's, a lot of it's driven by money and you should see what's going on in, in Nigeria. So I believe that this misreading this passage Revelation um, chapters eight and nine has serious consequences. And then the thing that you said earlier, and that is it also undermines our witness that when we come alongside people and say, hey, we love the earth for reasons too. Let me tell you why we do it. Um, uh, we think we should care for the planet as well. Here's what well, we're in the, the context and that we actually talked about that before uh, we yeah. started recording. This is an issue that I grew up with just as being part of yeah, 1980s and 1990s uh, evangelical subculture where if you cared for the creation, you're a liberal, you're a tree hugger, you worship mother earth. And so it's this dichotomy. You're either, you know, you're either Christian or you're secular <laughs> and the secular people are the ones who worship the earth. Um, and what was really cool, especially doing a lot of work in the book of Romans start and, and you had read through Romans chapter eight, uh, that portion. Mm -hmm. But as I started exploring that years ago, starting to see evangelical conservative scholars who now started saying, wait a minute, we need to take texts like this seriously. And so you got someone like a Douglas Moo, who's one of the preeminent evangelical scholars in the book of Romans. He's started adapting this as well. When he starts moving yes. through this part of the text and saying, Hey guys, this is actually something we need to look at. Yes. Um, he's even gone for, uh, there, there's a, a really good, super accessible book. Uh, it's yes. totally low shelf uh, that, that Doug Moo uh, wrote with his son, Jonathan, who's also mm -hmm. a biblical scholar. It's called a uh, creation care, a biblical theology of the natural world. And it's this idea that no, like evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, we can still take this seriously and it doesn't make us line up with the liberals. And even if it does, and this is the point that I, I made earlier, anytime I teach this uh, topic in my classes, which I, I regularly do, I always try to make this a touch point. So if you come across the person 
who has a passion for creation care and they're not a Christian, what a great gospel connection yeah, you have. Yeah, uh, yeah. What a great point for a gospel conversation is to say, hey, I have a reason for why I think we ought to be exactly. doing this. And, exactly. and the other person's probably going to speak in that kind of absolute language as well. Like this is something we ought to do. But why? Uh, we, care this sh- the, we share this common desire for justice here to do what's right by, in the world. But what's your justification? Well, let me tell you, this is actually the Christian worldview um, and, and, and things yeah. like that. We we should not overlook because something like that could be just a huge witness, let alone. Exactly. It's just, I, th- I think it's part of our job responsibility. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, when we move on or just looking in general, looking at the trumpets, do they display a theme of decreation in a sense? Yes, they do. And that's actually really important. Uh, so decreation is the idea of undoing creation. So what happens then is the devastation of creation, for example, that follows the sounding of the first four trumpets has this understanding of reversing or undoing God's original creation. So the presence, for example, of this theme is in the first trumpet uh, is reversal of the, the land and the plants and the, what God did in the third day of creation. The sounding of the second trumpet, uh, a third of the creatures in the sea are, are affected and a third of the sea becomes blood as a, a reversal of the creation of the sea life, which God did in the fifth day. Uh, the death of many humans, which result from the waters because they were made bitter after the sounding of the third trumpet, is a reversal of the formation of human life on the sixth day of creation. And then the sounding of the fourth trumpet is a reversal uh, of one-third of the sun, one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars were struck. That is bringing darkness to one-third of the day and one-third of the night, and that's a reversal of God's formation of the sun, the moon, and the stars on the fourth day of creation. Uh, there's also, I think, another thing that we should understand here, and that's this. We cannot read the trumpets as something that God's doing because this is mm. the idea of decreation. And mm. God doesn't do decreation. He does creation. Now, someone might go, well, wait a minute, the flood. If you read the Genesis account, there's no question that the flood narrative in Genesis 6 through 9 is a decreation. Remember, in the Genesis chapter 1, God separates the waters from the waters, waters above and below. So he creates the sky in the middle. And then he separates the waters from side to side, creating dry land. Hmm. And that's God creating. So the, the separating of the waters was the means by which God created the flooding of the world is then the waters coming back over the land and even hmm. the waters above falling down. So this is the undoing of God's creation. You're like, well, the flood, clearly God did it. And so God does do decreation. But if you read the Genesis account carefully, and I think Tim Mackey and the Bible Project have some excellent podcasts. There's like a hundred of them on Genesis. Uh, or, or, and I'm not exaggerating, by the way. He, he just mm-hmm. really dives deep in the book of Genesis. He will argue that the flood narrative in Genesis 6 through 9 is God actually just accelerating what humanity was already bringing about. In other words, humanity was already bringing about the destruction that would lead to the flood. And that the Genesis account just simply says, well, God just accelerates the process. So it's a human process. And God's role is just simply allowing it to take place at, at an accelerated rate. Hmm. When we hear the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpets, these are really our depictions of demonic beings waging warfare, right? All right. Yeah. So this is in the next key thing. And that's this. The idea that the seven trumpets are God's doing has another significant problem. The fifth and sixth trumpets are clearly demonic agents. Now, you might, we might say, well, God's allowing this to take place. But the whole notion that God's unleashing demonic agents is a seriously problematic. Hmm. So again, as we know already, the first four trumpets are clearly distinguished from the last three. Let's, let's turn to Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. And it says, I looked and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven saying with a loud voice, whoa, whoa, whoa. And we'll look at that translation in a minute to those who dwell on the earth because the remaining blasts of the three angels who are about to sound. And then at the end of the fifth trumpet, which occurs in verse 12, the first woe is past. Two other woes are still coming. At the end of the, se- uh, the sixth trumpet, uh, actually it doesn't say that until chapter 11, verse 13, I think it is, or verse 14, yeah, chapter 11, verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So you see that they're clearly separated, the last three trumpets from the first four trumpets. They're also separated by the fact of the sheer length. The first four trumpets occur very quickly, one or two verses each. The fifth and the sixth trumpets take like an entire chapter between the, just between the two of them, 20 something verses there. The relationship of the fifth and sixth trumpets is also evidence because John uses hearing and seeing. Again, he says he sees a demonic horde in chapter nine, verse one, but in chapter nine, verse 13, in the sixth trumpet, he hears of a demonic horde. So and I, not a big point, but again, it just adds to the idea that these fifth and sixth trumpets are distinct and that they work together. Hmm. I'm going to argue in much more detail later on, because we have to, we have a lot to do before we can do this. 
that what you see in terms of the war that's taking place in the fifth and sixth trumpets is actually the, the battle of what we call Armageddon in chapter 16. But the battle of Armageddon, which is the sixth trumpet, can't be separated from the war that takes place in chapter 19 when Jesus returns and in chapter 20 when Satan's released from the abyss. But we have a lot to discuss uh, when we get into, the, into those details there. So uh, let, let's kind of save that for later on. But the point then is what's happening in the fifth and sixth trumpets is the unleashing of demonic agents to do war against God's people. And God is not the author of these things. He's simply allowing it to occur. That, that's fine because he's sovereign, but he, he's not uh, causing it to occur. Now, let me note also, Vinny, that this is going to go live for us in, I think, what, six days time, it'll go live. Uh, and as it goes live, if you're listening to this the first week uh, that it goes live, I think, which is the first full week of November 2023, uh, I will be in the middle of conducting a series of live streams to discuss the issue of the war in Gaza. And obviously, you can go back, if you're, even if you're listening to this in two weeks or three months or two years, you can go back to the Determined Truth uh, YouTube page and watch all of these events. And what I'm discussing there is the role of the American church or the Western church in this conflict. And we've had a serious role in this conflict. And as a result of that, we need to um, be active now. We, we just simply cannot be silent any longer. But the issue is so complex that so many Christians are like, I don't know how to be active. I don't know what to do. So we're just going to have a slew of, of webinars. I'm going to bring in human rights uh, activists. I'm going to bring in Israelis. I'm going to bring in Palestinian voices. I'm going to bring in Jewish um, apologists. I'm going to bring in lawyers and legal advisors. I'm going to bring in people working with the White House and uh, on the front lines. I'm going to bring in church leaders to discuss the theology. We're going to discuss all the various aspects of this. Is Hamas an evil um, entity bent on the total destruction of Israel? And does Israel have to just totally destroy Gaza because they have no other option? Mean, we're going to discuss all those questions uh, mm -hmm. over the course of a series of webinars because we need to be equipped because we have to begin engaging in this conversation. So I want to encourage you to pay attention to those. Absolutely. Um, in the narrative of the seven uh, trumpets, uh, there seems to be embedded several other literary features, which are probably very important to recognize to understand the, the passage, right? Uh, yes. So we discussed last time that we have to read the book of Revelation, including this account, as a narrative. We talked about the fact that the seven seals affect one-fourth of uh, humanity. The seven trumpets are clearly going to affect one-third. The seven bowls in chapter 16 affect the totality, the whole, the, the entire sun, moon, and the stars were darkened, for example. And maybe the seven thunders that we don't know what they were affected one half because they kind of come in the middle, one-fourth, one-third, maybe one half, and one whole. There's a literary progression. We also know that the prayers of the saints in chapters eight, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, are sandwiched between the account of the ending of the seventh seal and the beginning of the seven trumpets. So there's this overlap of the seals and trumpets, but there's also this overlap uh, of the prayers of the saints. And what's important to notice is that verses three and four in chapter eight, both verses make reference to the prayers of the saints. And I think this is really significant. All right. So what are the prayers of the saints? So good. Th this is a fundamental question of the book. We have to know mm -hmm. what the prayers of the saints are. They're clearly central to the storyline. First off, we know that because they first occurred in chapter five, verse eight. Right? The prayers of the saints went up before God, and that's in the throne room scene. So the opening scene to the whole main narrative of the book of Revelation, which starts in chapter four, that throne room scene in chapter four and five includes an introduction to the prayers of the saints. Second thing to notice, the word prayer, this is really surprising to me when I found this out. The word prayer only occurs three times in the entire book of Revelation. And the three times are in chapter five, verse eight, chapter eight, verse three, and chapter eight, verse four. That and this is again, this is John's way of doing it. He will link passages together by repeating terms. And when those terms are found only in those two passages, he clearly wants you to link them together. He does this all the time. So if you're new to the podcast, just go back and listen to the other ones or keep listening to the future ones because we're going to mention this oftentimes. So that again, that reinforces then the conviction that the prayers of the saints are central to the narrative of the seven seals and the seven trumpets because remember, they overlap. Then there's also reference to the word incense. Okay, so the word incense occurs in chapter 8, verse 3, and in chapter 8, verse 4, and in chapter 5, verse 8. In fact, mm. guess what? The word incense occurs four times. 
5-8-8384, and then in chapter 18. Hmm. But there's going to be something significant about chapter 18 that relates to this, these passages that we'll just discuss later on. I'm not dismissing it, but uh, chapter 18 actually is relevant. So again, he's linking these three passages together, chapter 5, chapter 8, and chapter 18, by the use of incense. And what we're going to find is chapter 18 and 19 is where the prayers of the saints are actually finally answered. Okay. So that, that, that'll be the clue there. So again, what I think is happening then is the prayers of the saints is to be connected with the fifth seal. In the fifth seal, the souls on the altar cry out, how long, O Lord? That's the prayers of the saints. Mm. The prayers of the saints is how long, O Lord, until you bring justice. And what were they told in the fifth seal? They were told, rest for a little while longer. And it was not yet until the number of your brothers and fellow servants who are to be killed as you are has been completed. So the first answer we get is, well, the number of God's people that are going to die for the kingdom haven't died yet. Now, if I skipped ahead and kind of cheated, here's the answer to the, to the book. The significance of that is, is that it's the dying of God's people that's fundamentally related to the redeeming of the nations. The nations mm. are redeemed, not by wrath, as we discussed, but by the dying of God's people. And we'll see that in chapters 10 and 11. And therefore, the, how long, O oh Lord? Well, not yet. Y'all haven't died enough yet. I, 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 just, I just went Texas on us, didn't I? Yeah, you did, yeah. I, I'll, I'll delete that. Y'all got to delete that one, right? Yeah, y'all got to delete that one for sure. So That's good. Uh, we have a, you know, a few minutes left. Do you want to start looking through the seven trumpets? Yeah, let's just go ahead and read uh, chapter 8, verses 7 through 12, the first four trumpets kind of quickly, and we'll discuss uh, briefly. Okay. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light may be darkened, and a third of the day may be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. Mm. So we've already discussed then the first trumpet is the land affected, the second is the sea, the third is the fresh waters, the fourth is the sun, moon, and the stars. This is the totality of all of creation that's being impacted. Uh, I think, and we'll see this as we go into chapters 18 and 19, which we'll get to eventually, uh, that there are good reasons to suppose that John intends for us to see the trumpets as a prelude to the fall of the kingdoms of the world, which is the, the great harlot in chapters 17 and 18. Remember again, chapter 11, verse 18, he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. The second trumpet refers to a great mountain, which was thrown into the sea. And mountains often represent kingdoms or empires. The woman in chapter 17 sits on seven hills or seven mountains. And so I think what you see here is the effects following the second trumpet are what impacts the Roman economy and the, and the economic well-being of those who profited from Rome's excessive prosperity. So a third of the ships are destroyed, right? And you're going to see in chapters 17 and 18, a third of the sailors and those who make their living by the sea are going to groan and, and lament the destruction of Babylon. So the ships were one of the primary means of transporting wealth to Rome. Uh, and it's probably the case then, I think, that the second trumpet is giving you a destruction of the great, or a description, a prelude at least, to the destruction of the, of the great prostitute. Uh, and the fact, that, again, that John wants us to link these passages is indicated by the fact that chapter 8, verse 9, and chapter 18, verse 19 are the only two times the word ships occurs in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. So again, they're linked thematically, and then this use of words and, and terms to, to link the passages together. The third trumpet then adds that the name of the star is Wormwood. And the word wormwood just simply means bitter. So it's a, it's a bitter herb. So when wormwood occurs in the Old Testament, it often represents the punishment that comes upon nations that have been polluted by idolatry. And you see that in the book of Lamentations, and obviously Deuteronomy makes reference to it, and also um, the book of Jeremiah. The fourth trumpet sounds, and then John says, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. And again, darkness that this trumpet brings is another indication of approaching judgment. The heavenly bodies are struck, looks forward to a coming judgment on the heavenly beings. And that raises a lot of other questions as well. But then after the fourth trumpet now, 
we have an eagle saying, whoa, 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 in verse 13, right? And I know we didn't, we read it earlier. We didn't, you didn't just read it here then. And the question actually is, is it supposed to be whoa, whoa, whoa? The idea of whoa, whoa, whoa is in this popular end times understanding is it's like God saying, you know, if you thought that was bad, watch out what I'm going to do now. It's going to get even worse. And that again, fits with this understanding of God as this God of wrath is bringing wrath and judgment upon the world. But the word ooi in Greek, it's ooi, like four vowels together. So it's kind of hard to pronounce. Ooi can also be an indication of a lament. Uh, it can be, and by the way, it's used mm. six out of the 14 times in the book of Revelation. It's actually used to indicate an, a lament. In fact, in chapter 18, it occurs, I think, six times in chapter 18, verses 10, 16, and 19, twice in each of those verses. And in those six occurrences, most English translations translate it as like, alas, 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 not whoa, whoa, whoa. So it may not mean whoa, whoa, whoa. In this instance, it may mean alas. And the fact is, and this is what I pointed out earlier, that it's very difficult to suppose that the fifth and sixth trumpets are even judgments at all. Um, the fact is that in the sixth trumpet, it parallels the sixth bowl, and the sixth bowl is a description of Armageddon. The only two times the word Euphrates occurs is in the sixth trumpet and in the sixth bowl. Uh, clearly connecting the two. So if the sixth trumpet is Armageddon, that's not God's wrath. Armageddon is the war that Satan is waging against God's people. And I'll discuss that in much more detail uh, as we proceed. So if the sixth trumpets, um, if the sixth trumpet then parallels the sixth bowl, then the agent behind the demonic hordes in the sixth trumpet is Satan, not God. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, I mean, it's the radical, you see how, by the way, how distorted of a misreading this is? Yeah. Uh, that means that the three woes are not God inflicting wrath upon the world, but three, it's God lamenting. It's God going, alas, alas, look what's happening. My creation is being destroyed. So Barbara Rossing, who I think is a phenomenal scholar and has written a wonderful text, and she's another scholar that's clued me in like, hey, there's something else going on besides this popular end times uh, understanding. And she says, quote, whoa, the word woe, or the translation woe, quote, is not really a helpful translation for the Greek word. She said, it's, a, it's sense is rather one of lament, like a mourner in grief, wailing out repeated cries of, oh, 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 at the death of a loved one. She mm. notes that Spanish Bibles simply translated it as I, I, I. And she says, I would translate the word as alas. Mm. The meaning of the Greek word of uai is first of all, a cry of pain, like the word ouch in English. She adds, it's a subtle but significant shift in direction against because alas conveys God's sympathy in a way that the word woe does not, end quote. And so again, I think this, uh, so again, I'm not the only one saying these things. I'm, I'm taking these clues that these other scholars are saying, going, hey, let's, how do we read this then? How do we make sense of this passage? And that's what kind of led me there. So I, I think this is huge. Instead of God being bent on wrath and like, I'm warning you guys now, if you thought that was bad, you should wait to see what's going to happen mm -hmm. now. Instead, God's lamenting because of mm -hmm. what's become of his creation. Hmm. So I, I think that's a huge difference. Wow. What do you think this means for how we understand the fifth and sixth trumpets then? Well, as I kind of alluded to a minute ago, that we're going to have to come back to this later because to really dive into the fifth and sixth trumpets means we really have to have chapter 16 chapter 19 and chapter 20 in mind. And so we actually have to go, we can't just go through the seven um, bowls. We have to go through all of chapter 19 and at least the first half of chapter 20, and then we can come back. Uh, and the mm. way I'll, maybe I'll just tease your mind here. And that's this in revelation chapter nine, John sees the abyss being opened. An angel comes down from heaven and the abyss is open in chapter 20. An angel comes down from heaven and the abyss is closed. Mm. And maybe there's a literary parallel between the two. And that is what's happening in chapter 20 actually precedes story time, what happens in chapter nine. And mm. so it's closed in chapter 20, which goes backwards in time. Satan's thrown into it for a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And then chapter nine says, says it's opened. And when it's open, what does Satan do? Well, he gathers the forces to, to make war against God's people, which is chapter 16, 18, uh, chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 20. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you're basically talking about the battle of Armageddon, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think 16, 19, and 20 
all reference the same war. And the language is almost identical, in fact, in 16, 19, and 20. It's all describing a war, and that war is the same war. And we hmm. find out it's the war Satan wages by means of the kings of the earth against Christ and against God's people. And you can even include the angelic beings if you want to there. Um, so that exactly. But we'll have to go discuss that more later on. Okay. And then so we also want to make a point to say, especially with uh, the aforementioned yeah. uh, wars that are happening in Israel right now, none of what we're going to talk about is going to have anything to do with end times wars with Russia and Israel and the Valley of Megiddo or like like I, like I've told my recent yeah. Sunday school classes, anything we're seeing now has nothing to do with the end times. It's just uh, in that it's just it's just a battle because this is what nations do. They rage against each other and exactly. they rage against God. Exactly, which is what happens in the end times. But but what they mean by the end times, you're exactly correct. Yeah, yeah. The, exactly. the events that we're seeing on CNN yeah. are not going to usher in the next stage of events. Exactly. Getting it one step closer to Jesus returning to Jerusalem. Exactly. And in fact, the idea that these events are is dangerous. Mm -hmm. and dangerous in a lot of ways. And I'll discuss this on the live streams. If you're listening to this as a podcast, obviously you can have to go back in time a little bit. It's dangerous because we're actually affirming Israel's annihilation, mm -hmm. genocide of mm -hmm. the people in Gaza. And you can say Hamas did it and they're responsible, but there's responsibility on both sides. This is not good for the people of Israel either. I'm going to read a, a letter that was an op-ed in the New York Times written by a former I IDF soldier. IDF is Israeli Defense Forces. A former IDF soldier that fought in the Gaza War of 2014 comes out and says, this is bad for everybody. And he's speaking against the war because of what he saw as a soldier in Gaza in 2014. Mm. And it's bad, not just for the Gazans, but for Israel as, as well. So here we are rejoicing at war and all those things that, that we discussed there. And then add to this, and here's what I think is so incredibly ironic, but, but tragically ironic. And that is, Evangelical theology, which doesn't necessarily mean it's associated with dispensationalism, but often it is. Mm -hmm. And dispensationalism is the popular end times understanding that war is going to happen in Israel and Armageddon and Russia is going to invade and all this kind of stuff. Dispensational, I'm sorry, evangelicalism, one of the pinnacles of evangelicalism is Christian witness. The idea of the euangelion, the evangelical mm -hmm. comes from the word euangelion, which is the good news, means we believe that people need to accept Jesus as their personal savior in some personal way, although I wouldn't exclude people necessarily, but I, I think that's the general idea uh, there. I think there can be people that follow Jesus, but they never actually, and they truly believe in Jesus and they worship Jesus and they believe him as Lord, but they never had a conversion moment. It's it, it, just a, been their lifestyle. But nonetheless, that, that's generally a kind of part and parcel of evangelicalism. Well, Therefore, our task is to be God's witnesses. Mm -hmm. Well, if we support one nation state like the United States or Israel over and against another nation state, what is our witness to those people? And namely, what is our witness to the entire Muslim world? And our endorsing of this is tragically negative consequences for our Christian witness and our testimony. So for everyone's sake, we need to cry out for peace and for justice. And I think there it is, and we'll discuss this on the, on the live streams. Is it possible that there can be peace? Yes, it can be. Po it is possible. The notion that it's not possible is just part of the propaganda to justify genocide. And it's also not good for Israel either. So peace is definitely possible. And that's the only way about it. And it's the way of Jesus too. So I'm preaching to the choir right now, I know, but other people well, listening but, also, Vinny. Yeah, right. Uh, what an awful choir we are. But I, I, will, I will say this as well. As someone who... I'll put myself in the conservative reformed Baptist camp. Uh, that's the, the church I'm a member of that, that yep. type of place. And I've already mentioned something like today being October 31st, it's reformation day. Yeah. We celebrate Martin Luther. We celebrate the solas. We have this, this rich history in, in reformation theology. By, by the way, we, you celebrate Martin Luther. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I, I was speaking indicative of my tribe. Okay. Your tradition. All right. All right. I wasn't sure if that was a generic plural, including me. I'm not no, condemning no. Martin Luther, but Martin no. Luther was very anti-Semitic. Oh, he had a lot of issues. He had a lot he of issues. A, yeah, he did. So I do think that there's great things that happened with the Reformation. I think a lot of problems happened with the Reformation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, absolutely. But, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to make no, sure. But, that we, but one of the problems, especially in, in reform circles, is we love yeah. things like Paul. 
And and so we 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 think the Reformation is just uh, recapturing Paul and preaching about predestination and mm-hmm. uh, all those sorts of things. And it, it, like, hey, cool. Like, I I appreciate a lot of that. Yeah, it's great. But one of the things that folks in my camp in my tribe don't know what to do with is what do we do with the Gospels outside of Christmas and Easter, right. and and you know things like the Sermon on the Mount are passages that I. Uh, it's like the mainline liberal churches. I'm going to put that mm. in quotes, right? Mm. The mainline liberal churches have taken the, the Sermon on the Mount. And then like we take Paul. So you guys get the red letters. We got Paul. And this is one of those things where like, no, all of scripture is God breathed. Paul is merely preaching the Jesus uh, sermon anyway. Yeah, right? He's reading Jesus. He's, he's reading, reading the Jesus. gospels. Yeah. So we need to go back to things like the Sermon on the Mount. We can't graduate from the Sermon on the Mount. And so if if we're looking at like what's happening right now in the Middle East and in Israel, and we're getting excited, even secretly excited, because this is like ushering in that next wave of events. Well, how can you take the Beatitude seriously? How how are we really caring about those who are mourning right now? Uh, Can we can you truly be meek when you secretly want war to be happening? Right. Like I, you can't, you can't really have both. Or when um, you're at least rejoicing when war does happen, even if you don't exactly, want it to happen, you're exactly. rejoicing when it does. Yeah. How how are we hungering and thirst for righteousness? The way things ought to be. If if what we're saying is no, the way they ought to be ought to come through missiles, right? And right. and human uh, military institutions and and uh, death machines. How could you be merciful? Uh, how could we be pure in heart? How could we, you know, Matthew five nine? How could we be blessed as peacemakers and be right. called sons of God. Right? right. And these are the things that we need to take seriously. Even folks in the reformed camp uh, where it's just not all about Paul. I love Paul. I've taught Romans so many times and I want to teach it again. Uh, I, I've, I've, you know, I, I live in that world. I get it, but we can't ignore the red letters. We can't give them away. This is part of Paul's tradition as well. We need to take this as seriously. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let that go. Cause that was a great way to end. That was perfect. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, brother. So next week we will, uh, we're going to continue working through some of these and just, uh, yeah, actually we're going to have a guest next week. Oh, that's right. So, yep. So next week we're going to have a guest. We're going to talk about the issue of global warming and the church and what does that mean and how do we interpret the scriptures and the text and all of that stuff there also. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. All right, everyone. Hope, hope you had a great reformation day. Yes. And happy all saints day. <laughs> and all saints day. Yeah, exactly. I uh, pray for peace because that's what God's sons and daughters do. All right, everyone. See you next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.